Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a software company that is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. We enable life science companies to accelerate R&D pipelines by helping them precisely fill their talent gaps. I'm very excited to welcome Luisa Salter Sid, the Chief Scientific Officer at Gossamer Bio. Thanks for joining us today, Luisa. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Glad to be here. So as a starting point, uh, we'd love to just learn a little bit about your background, career journey, and how you got to Gossamer today. Sure. So I'll try to be brief because it's been a long time, (laughs) but I'm originally from Portugal. That's where I got my bachelor's degree. And then I wanted to really get into science. And so I came to the United States to get my PhD at the University of Miami. And I I really fell in love with immunology at that time. You could see that the progress and the promise that was coming together with, you know, discoveries around T-cells, B-cells, MHC. After the PhD, I came to Scripps at San Diego to do a postdoc with Pat Pearson. He had been, again, one of the pioneers on the MHC, a discovery of beta-2 microglobulin and things like that. And then Pear became the head of Johnson, that time Johnson & Johnson research. And so some of us moved with him to Johnson & Johnson, and it was a lot of fun because it was the first time that we were really doing what we thought was, uh, you know, something that could change patients' lives. It was very, very interesting. But it was also the time where biotech was starting, and especially in the West Coast, in San Diego and San Francisco. And so there was a lot of interesting opportunities, including ones around the genome and the sequencing of genome. And so I joined a company called Genset. That was a French company that was head-to-head with human genome sciences, and they had tons of new proteins to really characterize. And that's uh, what I did for a few months until, unfortunately, uh, with 9-11, they had to really make decisions, and they decided to be acquired by Mark Serrano. So from there, I did a couple of small biotechs in San Diego. And again, I learned a lot, but I really felt that I wanted to, the big pharma experience to really understand what it really took from soup to nuts in terms of drug discovery. So that's why I went to uh, Bristol-Myers. And as I often mentioned, it was going to be just a quick couple of years and I was going to learn everything. And of course, it was 13 years later and I still hadn't learned enough, <laughs> but it was a great journey. I loved being at Bristol-Myers. They were really super strong in drug discovery. And at that time was the start of immuno-oncology. So it was an exciting, very exciting time. I always wanted to know what happened if I built something from scratch, could I do it? And, uh, and so when I had the opportunity with a friend of mine, Sheila Gujatri, which founded Gossamer and had been the CMO at Receptus. So when I had that opportunity and then was going coming back to San Diego, so couldn't go wrong there. So that's why I decided to join Gossamer and happy to share a little bit more of that experience in the company. Awesome. Well, obviously it sounds like a quite a storied career so far, and it sounds like you've had a unique opportunity to participate not only in emerging biotech companies, but also more established pharma companies, and perhaps at a time when the industry is really changing a lot. You know, in that regard, given that you've sort of been 
part of the life sciences industry's most recent waves and trends. I'm just wondering if you could perhaps summarize for us what you're seeing out in the market today, what's driving biotech today, as well as where are we at as a consequence? Yes, absolutely. I think it has changed and, you know, and that is, I think, normal, right? All industries should adapt and change. Obviously, in the last five to seven years, has been probably a change has been faster than before. A lot of it was driven by the IO wave, right? And, and the promise of really changing the, the treatment of cancer. It turns out, as usual, science is more complicated than we always think it is. So there has been, as you know, some failures. And that made folks turn around from just that focus and more into ways of addressing some of the things that we were seeing with trying to identify new targets and new ways. And with that came new platforms. Again, ideas about gene therapy, cell therapy, which have been very strong until recently. And now I think we are in a, a crucial time and where we can actually repivot it and look at all the things that we've done well and all the things that we've missed and, and that actually there is not a, a recipe that is unique. So it, yes, in some cases, platforms make a lot of sense because you focus on a specific cell type of target. Uh, in others approaches, some therapeutic areas at some point have really uh, a further advancement than others, but that will eventually change. So I think now we're getting to a more holistic approach. And so you see that in the last year, the startups, and it really hasn't been as homogeneous as we've seen in years past. And there we're seeing a, a much broader interest coming through and not only from the scientists, but the investors themselves. You know, one quick question I have is, given that uh, you're based in the West Coast, uh, you're probably also in the heart of Silicon Valley and seeing how technology has um, played a role in the broader landscape. What have you been seeing in terms of this intersection of biotech and tech? So machine learning and AI is becoming really, again, a big driver of uh, those interactions, obviously. And you see quite a few companies or founders of companies that were actually focused where in other areas, you know, I had some folks that started a company and their background was actually in looking at traffic lights in big cities. <laughs> so, so you really have... Now you're trying to apply those approaches and those technologies into the science and biology in particular. And a lot of it has been focused on new target ID, as you know. And then what happens is that they get to a point that these companies need to bring the biologists and bring the drug discovery in because now they have these targets and they have to prioritize or they have to know what to do with them. There's also a bit of a time to repurpose either drugs or approaches across therapeutic areas. So I, I think it's very important because I do think, and we can go talk about that forever, that AI is going to really help physicians with giving the right drug to right patient. So it's not just scientists, but it's even physicians in practice. The new target ID, I, I just think that we have to be careful with it because, again, that can send us into many, many rabbit holes, right? So I think that that is a piece that we need to really know how to manage in terms of the amount of information that we get in. And we've all been there, right? the information we get in and how to really process it because otherwise, you know, we could really spend a lot of time that it's not fruitful at the end. So I, I do think we need to approach that. I don't like to say carefully, but definitely judiciously. Just because a new target, it doesn't mean that it's going to solve a specific problem. 
unless we really understand the biology well. Great, Louisa. Now that you, you know, provided your perspective on what's driving the biotech industry nowadays, we'd love to unpack the work that you're doing at Gossamer and how you approach this at Gossamer. Absolutely. So one of the things that I liked about Gossamer was the fact that it was not focused on a specific type of target or a specific platform. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I have ADD and I really cannot just do one thing at a time. So what attracted me here was that really was more basically driven by the science. Obviously, we are focused in immunology, but that's, again, not unique. Most companies these days are focused in immunology because immunology is kind of important. <laughs> but, but definitely, uh, there is that focus and and that leverage of those types of knowledge, both from the part of the employees, but also of the, of the infrastructure. That is our common thread, the immunology piece. But then we have multiple indications, multiple target classes. Still focus on small molecules, but again, we will go where the biology takes us. So I think for me, that was important that have really a model where we will be open to pivot to new discoveries, to new science, to uh, new unmet needs. And we could pivot it and follow, again, the science and the best approach rather than be anchored to a specific approach or a specific platform. So I thought that was what was interesting for me. And uh, the ability to actually build a portfolio from scratch. Uh, and so we have target ID, that lead optimization, you know, obviously uh, IND enabler and clinical programs. So we have, you know, all the stages. And I thought that was that because I, again, I firm believe back the knowledge and the data can go back and forth. And I, that was one of the things that I like that customer. Great. For some of the folks that are listening, I think it'd be really interesting to hear about how you all landed on the indications that you're working on now and, and where you are from a, from a development perspective. So clearly, as I mentioned, I mean, there was that piece of immunology. We have uh, a drug, as you know, in phase two in PAH that is really focused in, in a way outside, even though there is an impact on macrophages, but it's outside, it's more vascular remodeling. But everything else is really focused around modulating the immune system. Again, some of the clinical assets that the initial clinical assets were brought in by Sheila and some of the board members, like Fahim has name, and they were driven by what they felt was a potential for, again, a clinical impact. On the preclinical stage, we always talk about working waves. So the first wave was really supporting the clinical programs and making sure that the data that was there for mechanism of action, PK, PD, all that kind of made sense. Uh, that was probably the first few months. Then the second wave was more focused on targets in pathways where there is some validation, but we felt that we could have a way of impacting those pathways in a more impactful way, I should say. And again, the idea was that, okay, you're using some validated biology, you're looking at some meaningful differentiation, and that will help, you know, again, the portfolio sustainability in the, you know, the short term. And then the third wave, which we're starting now, is looking at new things that we believe can be more, quote unquote, first in class. Again, driven by the biology, we have very close associations with some and collaboration with some folks here at the Stanford Burnham and the UCSD labs and stuff. So we have, again, it's still around 
indications that, and again, and pathways that we know well, because again, we want to leverage the infrastructure. It's a small company, right? But but we're now looking at more innovative targets, pathways. Um, so that's the third wave, and that's the one we are starting now. So the whole idea has a sustainable portfolio, but at the same time, uh, where we can really leverage, you know, we have a very strong research group, we have a very strong clinical group, so we can leverage really those abilities, but at the same time, we can innovate as well, right? So that is the balance that you have to bring in. You know, given that you have assets in so many different phases of development from discovery all the way to phase three, any lessons learned or pearls of wisdom around how to keep the team focused and how you orient the team it's something I always struggled with was, you know, hey, we have this late stage program, but oh, by the way, we have we have an important program in, in preclinical or discovery as well. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on how you orient your team uh, around that. Definitely challenging. And it, it was something that I had a BMS too, because I never had like an early discovery team. Some, some companies have. We always integrated because I always felt that it, it is easier to, because if you have someone that is focused only in the early space, they really don't understand the drug piece and what you have to have in a target and in an approach. If you have someone that is very focused just on pharmacology and, and drug delivery, then you know the biology and the mechanism of action kind of suffer as well. So it's important to have these groups that talk all the time. But what you say is something we struggle every day, so I'm not going to say we solve that. I think the first answer to your question is really be diligent. You know, you have to really be on top of it every day because we do prioritization. We have prioritization from the preclinical portfolio, even from the clinical, meaning what can we do for the clinical assets that is impactful uh, versus what is good to know, nice to know, but not really driven. But, you know, things to your point, pivot all the time. And the fact that, like, let's say, for instance, I have a PK group, right? And yes, you need to do a PK analysis of PK samples for a compound that is already in the clinic and you're doing some preclinical work. And then you have a compound that is a program that is just starting. How do you prioritize? And you prioritize by relevance. Yeah, this is a clinical program, but is this PK in this new animal model that I'm doing going to impact any decision? Uh, versus I have an early program. Uh, yes, but this PK is critical because it's going to tell me whether this compound has legs or not and whether I should continue the SIR in that compound versus another, right? So it's not just the stage. And I think sometimes people just fall onto the stage of the program. What is the impact of the experiment or the study that I'm doing on what are we doing? Is it decision-making? Is it just good to know? Which is nothing wrong with good to know, but it helps with the prioritization. So you have teams, program teams, and those obviously are focused on their own program and they have their prioritization. But then you have to have functional area prioritization. So the in vivo pharmacology, the in vitro screening, the ADMI talks, those groups have to have their functional prioritization pieces too, where they get all this work for the clinical, the preclinical, and then there is a decision of first, what is impactful, what can be achieved, what can be done. Uh, you have to have that too, because if you just leave it to teams, then everything that they do is important. And then every team, everything they have is important and you don't know how to, to do this, right? So you have to have both the functional area and the team prioritization. Wonderful. Well, you know, I think there's definitely a lot to be talked about in terms of leadership and management, which I think we'll probably get to, especially in this age of COVID. But, you know, before we get to that topic, I'd love to just learn a little bit about your perspective on this topic of diversity 
especially in the life sciences industry. And what does that mean to you? How have you seen it manifest? And what are some of the guiding principles you could share with your peers and other life science companies to help increase the diversity of our industry? Absolutely. And that's something we all struggle with, right? Because it is definitely not simple. We are, you know, a very diversified industry, which is a good thing. I think in general, we probably have done more than many other industries, but there's still some growth. And the diversity uh, is not just about gender and about ethnicity, it's also about personality and how people feel like they can accomplish what they need to. And not everybody uh, does the same way. So for instance, we were talking about our projects and program leads. You know, it does take a certain personality to be a project team lead, right? Because you have to work across functional areas. You're basically managing by matrix. You have to convince people to get your stuff done, as I was just talk about. So you need to be, be outgoing. You need to like to do that, to reach out. That doesn't mean you are a good or a bad scientist. It's just a personality and they're kind of more leadership focused personality, right? On the other hand, you can have an amazing scientist. We had a BMS an amazing scientist that had two drugs to his name that was considered one of the best chemists in the world. You wouldn't all want to lead a program if you had to shake a stick at him. He would not want to do it, right? Because that's not what he wanted to do. And someone's career path should not be impacted because they choose that that's not what they want to do. And sometimes we kind of associate these oh, leadership qualities and executive presence with a career path and that how that's how people are going to succeed. And there's really many paths to success, right? And for instance, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's going to get invited to the academy and all that. Absolutely didn't want to lead programs. Uh, and there's many cases like that. Or people want to lead programs, but they just don't have uh, the same communication style that others perceive being needed to manage a team. So I think that's one of the issues that we talk obviously about and well about the other diversity aspects, but we have to focus on an industry also that because let's focus. Most of us did not go to science because we love talking to people, right? <laughs> that was not yeah. what, like, that's not what drove us to go to science. Yeah. So, you have to totally be open to that kind of judgment and uh, of lack of judgment, I should say, on a daily basis to make sure that we really uh, leverage the best out of folks, out of people, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, I see this a lot across not just scientific disciplines, but even uh, business disciplines and, and elsewhere, which is everyone assumes that becoming a manager or a director or a VP, right, is the right path for them. It's the right path for some. But I think in science, there's this unique parallel path, which is not necessarily a managerial track, but a technical expert or a technical right fellow sort of path. And I kind of feel like in the broader industry, we've lost sight of that secondary career path. And yet it has tremendous value, right? Bell Labs or HP, right? Like, you know, these institutions which developed phenomenal technology, it wasn't the vice president of engineering who came up with it, right? Is it safe to assume that you're sort of of the mindset that we should be enabling and empowering individuals to become more generally masters of their craft, whether it be leadership or the discipline itself? Is that a fair characterization? Oh, I'm not a big fan of putting uh, square pegs into round holes, right? Because people are not going to be happy. They never ever perform greatly at that because that's not really where their talent is. So at the end of the day, it doesn't help anyone, right? But on the other hand, as I mentioned, you know, people need to be rewarded by the stuff that they're good at. It is really important. You know, everything counts, right? Absolutely. 
you know, just on the on this topic of diversity, you brought up a very interesting point about scientists not necessarily wanting to engage with folks. How have you, you know, I'm sure you have mentored and trained many, many great scientists. How do you help those junior scientists figure that part out, the importance of communication and how, how best to communicate? And it's not just all about, you know, what you do in the lab. We'd love to hear any, any reframing or positioning that you've done there that you think really works. Absolutely. And it has impacted me as well. And most of the folks that I know, um, even the ones that are very successful at communication, it's, it is still something that you have to work on all the time. Coming back to something that was said before, I'm a very big believer on managers that actually know the traits, right? So whatever they are doing that they manage, they actually know the details, right? There are obviously an argument in other industries for, you know, to be just a manager doesn't really have the content specialty because it is about, again, the managing skills and so forth. But I think for the most cases that those in our industry is still not that useful, right? I mean, it's like, you know, building, working a Boeing, but not knowing what a plane is, right? I mean, that's not going to help you a lot. And and sometimes we see that in the industry, right? And so we are always tell you have to distill what you say so that people who don't know science understand what you're saying. And so again, you will not tell someone a Boeing, you have to distill what you're saying because people don't know what an airplane is and you have to tell them, right? This will never happen, right? <laughs> so, uh, so I think that's one of the things that will help is that more and more we have kind of that leadership that has some content knowledge because that will help a lot of folks that may not be as good as uh, elevating the pitch or, you know, talking in very strategic points of view. It, it will help them to be more uh, successful. So that's one yeah. of the things you have to also work with the top, not just with the young folks. I do think that as a mentor, the, me- the best thing and all the good mentors I have, the best thing you can do for someone is being an advocate, right? Because their advocacy piece is very important, right? That, you know, people like, for instance, if you, someone that is, you know, again, is junior in, in an organization, if you're the mentor of that person in the organization, really make sure that the other folks in the organization, whether it's the same level or at a higher level, really know that person, know the strengths, know the things that, you know, they're still working on, understand their perspective. So I think that that advocacy piece is very important as part of a mentor, as long you know as you feel that there is a rationale for it. Obviously, now in terms of the of the mentee itself, I think that again, I don't think we should encourage people to become someone else. I think the best thing you can do is really see where that person's strengths, and I don't believe that people change dramatically. There are the strengths, what are the weaknesses, what are the things that you just need a simple tweak and again, a little leveraging versus things that will be like, you have to reimagine this person and redo it all over again, right? So that's the piece that you, I think it's most important is really not having like a, a recipe that works for everything, but just look at the person and see what are the things that will help that person succeed in an area that you feel they will be successful and hopefully they will be the same area that they want to be, right? Because again, it's harder when someone is a manager wants to really be a manager, but that's not where their skills are. Then it's harder, right? But uh, hopefully, you have someone that really wants to just improve on a path that there will be success. I think it's uh, you brought up two very important points. 
you know, one being for, for anybody and, and obviously for, for scientists as well, but knowing and understanding your audience when you're talking to them and making sure that you're coming at it from everyone understands the same things that I do. So it's a very valuable point. It's tough for us scientists because things that we think are like really, really simple it can be very complicated for us. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the second point, which was around understanding team members for their unique selves and really figuring out what makes them tick. So that's, I think, a very important advice for the folks listening. You know, perhaps to switch topics for a second, but, you know, we'd be remiss not to bring up the current environment that we're all in, in the COVID world, and would love to hear your thoughts on how biotech or perhaps Gossamer has adapted to this new environment that we're all operating in. Any, any lessons learned that, that you've seen there? Uh, yeah, I, I think there are quite a few. I mean, I actually think in general, biotech has done a good job. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, in a way, I'm not saying it's easier than other industries, but, you know, we were considering it, at least in California, an essential industry. And obviously, you know, we're not so dependent at some of the services industries and others on, uh, on human contact. So it was, in a way, easier. Now, we learned a lot. I think what we did from the beginning at Gossamer was understanding that we could not stop the lab. I was not going to kill all the, the mice and the rats and put all the experiment and freeze all the cells. That was not going to happen. <laughs> so what we found the beginning was day one was having these shifts. So we met every week and we decided what were the things that were critical and we try not to have more than six people in the lab at a time. So that was for the first few months. Clearly, this is easier to do in a smaller company. If you're a Bristol Myers, it's much more complicated. But in a smaller company, uh, it's easier to kind of have that kind of, you know, detailed oversight. And then so we have grown from that. And then we had more people. And now we actually back as the research level. We are back a full time. But the guidance is that if you personal reasons or family reasons cannot come to on site generally or in certain days or at certain times, there is that freedom and there is that flexibility. People have responded very well to it. And actually most of them wanted to, you know, come and have that contact. So it is a bit different for the rest of the company, and we can talk about that. But I think in research has worked very well. I think what we learned is that we have learned, I think, a lot from this. We've learned that actually things don't need to be done the way that we did it before, meaning to be productive, you may not have to be on site from eight in the morning to six or seven at night. You know, it is okay to be on site to do your experiments, talk to your peers, whatever. But then if you want to do some data analysis from home, that is fine, right? And again, I'm talking very researched. I do think that flexibility, that understanding that, you know, we don't have to be as rigid and just because you're not there from eight to seven doesn't mean you're not a good worker and that you don't deliver. And a lot of us have that, right? I mean, if I'm not in the lab all the time, people are thinking I don't work, right? So I think that was super helpful. Um, as the organization in general, most of it is not back. Um, most of the folks are not back on, on clinical and, and other areas because, again, it's not needed for them. And again, you have almost two camps. You have the camp of people saying, I don't really need to have a go. I can do, and people have been super productive. Um, and actually in a way I'm more productive because you know there's meetings all the time and, and all that. 
and then you have the other people say, I really need the, the human interaction. And even if I don't need it to do my job in the sense of my immediate deliverables, I do need that interaction to really, you know, align, to strategize, to whatever. So so that I think is interesting because I people now know themselves better. Uh, in terms of works for them at work, right? And again, I mentioned, we were very productive, if anything more. I have a friend who was the head of UCSD uh, Gastro here, and he does a lot of uh, consulting. And, you know, he's now, because you don't have to fly and you can just call in, he's really on the phone from like three in the morning in Europe to uh, to 12 o'clock at night. So he's like, I never worked so hard in my life. So people are working and in some cases is much more productive. But I think he got us this thing that we have to do what what works for us and for the job and it don't not everybody has to like follow a prescription right you know louisa certainly sounds like uh, things at gossamer are going really well and we sincerely appreciate you sharing both your insights and experiences across multiple sort of successful uh, companies really appreciate the time that you spent with us today and look forward to having you back on again soon to hear how the gossamer story evolves and thank you so much. You guys are doing a great thing here and uh, I wish you all the best. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for taking yeah. the time. Thank, thank you. you, Lisa. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.